Hi, I'm Dr. Eric Claville, and you tune in to this edition of the Claville Report, where we discuss policy, law, and politics. Today, we're going to talk about the Democratic Party. Now, if you remember from our previous shows, we discussed the Republican Party. Where do we go from here? We took a look at where the Republican Party started and how it got from what we call the traditional Republican Party, the party of Abraham Lincoln when it first started, to the conservative identity that it has today or yesterday of Ronald Reagan to Donald Trump. Today, we're going to take a look at the Democratic Party because I believe that there is a shift that's happening in the Democratic Party, just like it happened in the Republican Party. What do I mean by that? The Democratic Party also had a start. It didn't start with Abraham Lincoln. It started with another president by Andrew Jackson. And that particular president represented an arm of the country that felt that their, their needs were not being taken care of by the government or the elites. Sound familiar? That particular candidate didn't belong to an established party. That particular candidate did not speak the elite talk. He spoke the talk and the lingo of the people. So from the very beginning, it started out as the People's Party. And it continued on as the People's Party, but then it evolved into something else. And today we have a Democratic Party that in the traditional sense, holds to the two-party system that we have, meaning that it's steeped in government, steeped in status, steeped in elitism on one hand, but it's also a party that is transitioning, transitioning with a group of individuals that want the party to expand and not stay where it is now. So let's get into it and let's look at and understand this issue from a clip that we're gonna play from Vox Media. Today's Democratic Party believes that government has an important role to play in society. It fights against economic inequality. It advocates policies that battle racial and gender discrimination. But it wasn't always this way. The Democratic Party was once the party of white supremacy, supporting slavery and the Ku Klux Klan. To understand how the party made such a huge shift, you have to go back to its origins in the mid-1820s, when it sprung up supporting the presidential candidacy of a popular former general, Andrew Jackson. Jackson was an outsider, challenging the political establishment and the elites of his day, and his critics disparaged him as a jackass. But Jackson embraced the animal as a symbol of determination, and donkeys started appearing in newspapers to represent him and his followers. In the 1828 presidential election, which saw record-breaking popular participation, Jackson won in a landslide victory. So his supporters argued that they, and not the old elites, represented the popular will of the country, and they started calling themselves the Democratic Party. Jackson's administration immediately began expelling Native Americans living east of the Mississippi River, an issue that defined the new administration. After he signed the Indian Removal Act into law in 1830, five large tribes were rounded up and forcibly marched into territories and camps further west. And the Democrats' ambitions didn't stop there. In the 1840s, the party adopted the doctrine of manifest destiny, the idea that Americans, 
white Americans, were divinely entitled to dominate the whole North American continent. Democratic President James K. Polk put this idea into action, massively expanding U.S. holdings by annexing Texas, acquiring Oregon, and winning much of what's now the southwestern U.S. in a war with Mexico. But soon afterward, national politics devolved into bitter controversy over whether new states entering the Union should be permitted to allow slavery. Democrats said they should, since their support base was strongest in slaveholding states. Yet a new northern party, the Republicans, sprang up in opposition to expanding slavery any further. When Republican Abraham Lincoln won the presidency, the South seceded and the Civil War began. Once the Civil War was over, the Republican Party was bitterly unpopular among white Southerners who wanted to maintain supremacy over former slaves. So the Democratic Party promised to limit federal government intervention on behalf of black citizens. Democrats became effectively the only political party in the South, aided by intimidation and suppression of black voters. Democrats also won on state and local levels, leading to the constant abuse of the rights of black citizens. As the 20th century began, the country was changing, and the Democratic Party was changing too. A handful of individuals and corporations had grown enormously rich and powerful, using their vast fortunes to influence politics. And as a reaction to this, some reformers began pushing an agenda of progressivism, arguing that the government should take more of a role in regulating big businesses and improving ordinary people's lives. At first, these progressive reformers were present in both parties. But it was Democrat Woodrow Wilson who won the presidency in 1912 and put much of this agenda into action over Republican resistance. So the Democratic Party became the main home for progressives, and the Republican Party became more the party of business. But it was the Great Depression of the 1930s that sealed the Democratic Party's new identity as the party of government activism. In an effort to combat the crippling economic situation, President Franklin Roosevelt signed what was then the largest package of domestic government projects in American history, calling it the New Deal. And in the process of doing this, his administration dramatically expanded the size of government. Yet the party was still split over race. By the mid-20th century, it contained Southerners who staunchly supported segregation, liberal reformers trying to end it, and many politicians who were just happy to look the other way. But in 1964, when the Senate voted on the Anti-Segregation Civil Rights Act, this shows how the progressive reformers in the party had gained the upper hand, steering the party away from its racist past towards equality and social justice. But the Democrats in the South voted against the Civil Rights Act, remaining wedded to the idea of segregation. This chart shows the presidential vote for black voters. Around the 1960s, black voters who had already been moving towards the Democratic Party would begin overwhelmingly supporting the Democrats from then on. And conversely, the Republicans would take a huge hit among black voters. Meanwhile, white Southerners moved away from the Democratic Party they had been loyal to for so long. In part because of race, but also because of a suspicion of big government and a desire to defend traditional values against liberal activists. Democrats would go from dominating the South to losing almost all influence in the region. Thanks in part to this drop in popularity among white voters, Democrats started losing elections, often losing by huge margins. But demographically, the U.S. is becoming an increasingly non-white country. And the Democrats have had a comeback thanks in part to minority voters. The huge influx of Hispanic voters has especially benefited Democrats. These demographic shifts helped the Democratic Party, once the advocates of white supremacy and slavery, 
to elect the first black president in 2008, showing just how much the party had changed over the years. Yet it's not entirely clear where the future of the Democratic Party will lie. But as America becomes more diverse, it's likely that the Democratic Party's appeal among minorities will continue to be its strength into the future. So here on the Clavier Report, we believe that taking a look at history first is the most important aspect of analyzing policy, law, and politics. You would think that the Democratic Party itself was always progressive and inclusive based upon what you see today. But the history shows that the party itself started out as a party of segregations, a party that believed that they should hold on to these beliefs that it's a white country. This is a party that expelled the Native Americans. This is a party that took land. We call it an annexing, but they took land by expanding to the West. They did all of these things in order to, under the guise and to believe that this is a white country. But you saw the issue. You saw the issue that split the party. The issue that split the party was the, par the issue of race. Sound familiar? The issue of race was at the forefront of should the party continue to move in the direction that it's moving or create a new frontier. And thanks to the new frontier of the West, thanks to those that were not of the traditional South where the Democratic Party first started, the Democratic Party is what we see today. A party that's more inclusive, a party that is more progressive in its ideas that America is not just for one group of people, but for all. A party that believes that the Bill of Rights applies to all individuals, no matter how you came to this country or whether you plan to run for office, become a regular citizen, hardworking, whether you plan to pursue business, whatever the case may be. It's a belief that all good things of this country apply to all people. But then the original location, the original people of the Democratic Party changed and flipped to the Republican Party. So now you see the shift, right? The segregation of the South started flipping toward the Republican Party. And that party started to become the party we see today. And the Democratic Party at that time, now it's starting to become the party we see today. So where are we now? We understand where we came from. And the issue of race was at the forefront. And the issue of race, and the issue of more specifically African-Americans and the rights of African-Americans was at the forefront, which split this country in the Civil War. And we still see the issue of race and the rights of Black people are still at the forefront of where we are in the nation now. How ironic that we still are dealing with that problem, that question about race, about what do we do with the black peoples of these United States of America. It's interesting how history continues to repeat itself. So the question becomes, will it repeat itself again? Let's take a look at the Democratic Party now. I want to look at it from a different angle. Because the Democratic Party today, 
it's seen in a in the sense of most political parties. Well, the main two, which is Republican Democrat, is where you have a nation or a party that is more conservative and has become elite. So individuals who have been our presidents, whether it be Bill Clinton in modern times, whether it be Barack Obama, or now whether it be Joe Biden, all of these presidents were what we call centrist presidents. And keep in mind, Bill Clinton actually implemented some of the hard line policies of the South in order to keep and win the presidency his second term. He actually recruited a lobbyist from one of the more conservative uh, consultancies in order to win his second term because he knew he needed the South. Barack Obama himself, for all the progressiveness that he um, actually talked about and the things that he wanted to do, his policies were fairly conservative. There was really no difference policy-wise, in my opinion, between Mitt Romney and Barack Obama as it relates to social and fiscal policy for our nation. Really no difference. And now we have President Joe Biden, who is a has had a phenomenal career in Washington, D.C., in the Senate, and of course, as vice president of the first African-American or black president of the United States. So now you see his stance, how he likes to deal with things, right? If you look at his nominations or nominees for his cabinet, fairly conservative. Merrick Garland, who will be confirmed as the attorney general, fairly conservative. Many others, whether it be the Treasury, uh, whether it be in other cabinets, they're fairly conservative. Those that seem to have gone to the left a little bit, they've pulled those nominations and left what I mean, their comments and their ideals, right? He's a type of politician that wants to work with both sides of the aisle, even though the other side of the aisle never wants to work with him or his or his boss, and they surely don't want to work uh, with the owl now, and they didn't want to do it with their president, President Trump, former President Trump, that is. So I do see that there is a faction of the party that wants to remain centrist, that believe that America works for the elite, those that have, as opposed to those that have not. Now, here becomes the issue. Just as the Democratic Party rose to prominence, speaking the language of the people, I believe that the Democratic Party, there is a faction within the party that's rising, speaking the language of the people as well, the voters of the Democratic Party. What do I mean by that? I believe that there is a group within the Democratic Party, the more progressive, the more leftist, the more liberal members of the party that are pushing and speaking loud, saying that this president, that this party must swing to the fences going left as opposed to staying in the center. I believe that the forefather of that modern movement is Senator Bernie Sanders. 
I believe one of the disciples of that party is Senator Elizabeth Warren. I believe one of the young stars of that party, of that wing of the party, is Congresswoman Cortez, AOC. I believe that that voice of the party is rising louder and louder and louder to a point that they cannot be ignored, to a point where if the center of the party does not adjust, there may be an issue. There may be an issue, not just in this presidency, but I think for future presidents as well. Think about it for a second. Can you see a split Democratic Party like we see a split Republican Party? Could we see the Democratic Party start an infighting like they started with the Tea Party under John Boehner, like they started and continued on under Donald Trump? Is this a party, Republican Party of Trump, or a Republican Party of the establishment, the Mitch McConnells of the world? Is this a Democratic Party of the former Democratic stars, the Clintons, the Obamas, and now the Bidens? Or is this need to become a party or will become a party? of the Bernie Sanders movement, the disciples of that movement. Many people said that, and I remember this as well, they said that the policies of Bernie Sanders won't work. You know, health care for everybody? Absolutely not. And then we got the, uh, what we call Obamacare, right? Health insurance, health for everyone. Personally, I think that the decision or the talk on health care should have been not health insurance, but health care. I believe that we should have looked at a more a system that's more like Europe, where you have a system of care where individuals that, that can't pay, and really all citizens, can get basic care. But then if you need advanced care, there's various insurance that you can buy to cover that cost. But basic care, you know, going to the dentist twice a year, getting your teeth cleaned right? Extractions, fillings. These things are basic, basic eyeglasses, a basic physical once a year, right? Cancer screenings once, twice, twice a year. Basic care, basic checkups. These are things that help keep health costs down and they're cheap. Generic drugs used to treat most things. These are things that we can do and we, we currently do it now. Under the VA, we do it. We do a great job under the VA. We do it under our Medicare and Medicaid programs. We do it right now. I think all the society could have really benefited from that. I think that was the discussion we should have had, not the discussion under insurance, because we know that most medical providers only take certain, or medical groups only take certain types of insurance. So now you have an issue: who's going to take your insurance? It should have been under health care not health insurance. But that's a policy that came out of the Bernie Sanders movement. And, we, and, and Senator Sanders did not just come up with this as a progressive idea overnight. This is something he had talked about and espoused about 
for decades. And we're doing it. Let's look at the issue of basic living income, right? Where you give a few hundred dollars a month, maybe a thousand dollars or a few hundred dollars a month to citizens for basic expenses. They said, no, this, this wouldn't work. We can't do this. That's not how our system works in America. This isn't a welfare state, right? Except for corporations, but we'll get there in a moment. Hmm. I think we're looking at the third stimulus where we're giving a stimulus or a basic income to people that don't have it, to people that have lost their jobs, to people that, that they can sustain themselves. Data has shown conclusively that people that receive their stimulus either saved a little, but for the most part, they paid bills. They bought food. Okay? They put it right back into the economy. But they said it could happen. Another progressive idea was free college for people that are going to community college, for people that are going to technical college, for people who are getting a trade. They said, no, we can't do this. We're not a welfare state. You got to work for every dollar you get, every dime you get. Look at me. I did it. My father gave me a loan of $10 million. I did it all by myself. Right? Hmm. I think one of the campaign promises was free college, which we saw that could be, that was something that could have been done. And the idea started under the Bush administration. It gained steam under the Obama administration that we could pay college costs, community college, trade school, technical school to the Pell Grant. In other words, these training programs for trades, for two-year associate degrees, for career certifications can be pegged at the cost of a Pell Grant. Hmm. They said it couldn't be done. It would cost, at that time, it would cost about $60 billion. I think we're still probably there in that range. Hmm. He said it couldn't be done. It's not a welfare state. It could never happen. But I think we're looking at a proposal for free college. And it's not just free. You have to make the grade or you pay it back, or it's a grant that becomes, it's a loan or payment that becomes a grant that's non-payable if you graduate or when you graduate and make a certain grade. So I get it. I understand it. I think it's a great idea. I think that's the way it should be. By the way, I believe that there should not be loans for educational costs where you borrow that. It should be grants. You know, I understand administrative costs to process certain things, but we should not charge interest on loans or, or monies to go to school. It shouldn't be loans. They should be forgivable grants. I think that would make it more equitable across the board. So let's get to student loans. He said, we'll forgive student loans. Well, some people said, I don't think it's fair. Well, I remember the banks got bailed out after they made some risky moves. I remember we have the car industry not fold so that we can create and innovate more. I remember we helped the airlines multiple times. Uh, we underwrite the railroad. We help companies all the time. But for people who want, who are saddled with student loan debt for jobs that are, don't exist anymore, for individuals who are saddled with the 
interest compounding over and over again, which we found through studies and investigative uh, studies that the interest that was compounding is actually something that was pushed by student loan servicing companies saying, oh, combine them in this, combine them in that, push them into this area uh, that they can basically put all their loans together. So now you have compound up on compound up on compound up on compound interest. So your principal may be 30000 but now because of all the interest that is compounded and compounded, you get a 25, 30-year repayment, like a mortgage. Now a 30000 loan debt on principal that has subsidized uh, interest on it while you're in school automatically becomes $50,000. And you have to pay that off over 30 years. That's like paying a house that you bought for $50,000 over 30 years. You wouldn't do that. It's, you just wouldn't do that. Because you'll end up paying more interest over the course of time and, and cost than what the house probably would be worth um, or the principal amount. Especially at an interest rate that may be variable as opposed to fixed. But that's beside the point. The issue is... We shouldn't have interest on those loans. There should not be loans to go to school. They should be forgivable grants. And we should also hold our universities accountable to hold costs at a level that is conducive to the, to the education that you're getting. I understand costs go up. But as a professor, we know that when we get textbooks, there's nothing, there's not too much difference in a lot of textbooks because knowledge doesn't change. You can update that very easily. We've had to, we've dealt with that issue through online books, right? We dealt with that issue through renting books. So I get it. We can we can deal with that model. We, we can deal with the issue, but we have to be willing to do it. We have to be willing to say we can make it equitable across the board. Again, equitable opportunity, not equal, but equitable opportunity. I believe in being equitable. So what do I mean by that? That means that if a person comes from a family that's well-to-do and may not need as much in order to take advantage of an opportunity, then I don't mind paying a little bit more. But if there's a group of individuals that are just as talented, just as intellectual, smart, just as hardworking, but need a little bit more help to take advantage of that same opportunity, and this is probably where equality comes in, being able to take advantage of the same opportunity, but in order to get there, you need a little bit more. Now, I know people say, I did it myself. I, you know, pulled myself up by my own bootstraps and so forth. I challenge that notion. I challenge that, that belief. Because nobody does it by themselves. We all needed help. We all needed someone to help us to understand, number one, that we had boots and bootstraps. Somebody had to help us buy it. Somebody had to show us how to tie the straps. And somebody showed us, had to show us how to walk in those boots. As the old adage goes, if you only walk a mile in a, another person's shoes, you understand where they came from. And that's what we have to understand today. Where do we come from and where are we going? Looking back, looking forward. Here on the Clueville Report, that's exactly what we do. Through history, through legal decisions, legislative history, and then seeing how the interaction of people during a time period takes place, then we can truly understand 
how we got here and where we go. Ask the question in the very beginning, do we believe that we're headed toward an internal split in the party, just like the Republican Party? I think history shows us that we are. I think it's conclusive that the current politics that we have of being centered and conservative is diametrically opposed to the issues that people are dealing with today. Today, we have the same issue that we had during the time of Andrew Jackson, President Roosevelt, and even the same time period of Donald Trump. The haves and the have-nots are like this. The question becomes, who would be the person to speak up? Who would be the person to speak the language of the people and move forward? We've tried it in modern times with the People's Party, the People's Movement. Others are trying it again. We have independent movements built around environmental protection and health and other issues. But it's going to take a larger movement, a larger voice, because at this point, I believe that the nation is suffering from a delusion that everybody has the same opportunity because everybody can achieve the same equitable resources to get there. And that's not true. Until we understand that, we will continue to be threatened with extremism on both sides. But once we understand that and we start to create policy around helping individuals with a hand up, not a hand out of dependency, now we start to create a more equitable, a more just, a more equal society. Well, we'll see. We've got four years of President Joe Biden. We've got four years of the centrist part of the party. We've got four years of the leftist side of the party. We have four years of Senator Joe Manchin out of West Virginia, who is holding the line between the two. The way he goes is the way the Republican Party goes and the Democratic Party and agenda. His vote depends upon many factors. But one of the main factors that our nation depends upon is whether we will listen to the people or listen to corporations. I hope you enjoyed this edition of the Clavier Report. The Democratic Party, where do we go from here? We'll see you next time as we discuss policy, law, and politics. Until then, be well. We'll see you next time.